Hi, ladies. It's been a while since you heard my voice. This is Kathy Laurie um, on the Virtue Podcast, right? I have so loved being part of this ministry. And the thing that I love so much is watching God raise up so many of our women to teach God's Word and to encourage us each week. Some of these girls have done a podcast for the first time, and haven't you gleaned so much wisdom from them? Each one has proven their gift by studying the scriptures and modeling it in their lives. Uh, Many of them are group leaders, but I just have to say thank you to all of them. It is a labor of love to do this. And I wanted to read this verse because it so exemplifies what's going on in virtue in our women's Bible study. It says, let the message about Christ in all its richness fill your lives. Teach and counsel each other with all the wisdom he gives. And that's exactly what's been happening, right? Well, I want to start right off with just a brief introduction to the book of James, the series that we are calling Walk This Way. James is a very practical book, as we will come to realize, um, really spelling it out, what it looks like to be a person of faith and how that is reflected in our actions, not just in our words and our beliefs. Verse 1 tells us that James is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, who was this James? And I'm going to take a few minutes to just explain that because I think it's important for us and it gives sort of credibility, street credibility to what James is about to tell us. We read that James was a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, There are a few people in the Bible named James, but in the very first generation of Christians, the leaders of the early church, um, we know the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, and this particular person named James became the four acknowledged leaders of the early church. And if you remember in the book of Acts, you remember he led the council there in Jerusalem. But this James, uh, who was a great leader of the church in Jerusalem, was also the brother of the Lord Jesus himself. He was the son of Mary and Joseph probably Jesus' younger brother, or he could have been Joseph's son from a previous marriage. He was perhaps a widower. But nevertheless, he was one of Jesus's brothers, and he was raised with Jesus. And we know from history that he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But let's think about what he says right off the bat. He says, I am a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's such a story behind that, and I can't help but take a look at it for a moment because, like I said, it's going to give some street credibility to what James is about to tell us. For James to say the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to realize that that word Lord is the Greek word kyrios, and that's an interesting word because in the Greek Old Testament, wherever the word for God, Jehovah or Yahweh, shows up, It was translated also in the Greek Old Testament as the word kyrios, which means Lord. It meant more than just master. So when James calls Jesus, his half-brother, Lord, the same title given to Jehovah of the Old Testament, it says a lot because the Jews had a very particular, unique view of God that was different from any other view of God in the nations all around, any other religion. To them, God was exalted above the universe. He was the creator of the universe who made it out of nothing. And the Jews understood that God was utterly independent, utterly apart from and above and infinitely exalted above the world. He is talking about his half-brother. 
How in the world did this happen in the life of James? Because we know that at one point, James, along with his other siblings, did not acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah. They did not endorse him. They at times even mocked him and sought to control him, thinking he was out of his mind. That was because the statements that Jesus was making were so outrageous that before Abraham was, I am. Because Jews were the last people to believe that a human being could possibly be God. But here is a Jew now saying, I have seen this man up close, and he is the Lord of all. How did this happen? It's because in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, Paul tells us that when Jesus was raised from the dead, he appeared to a number of people, and from what we can tell, he almost always appeared to groups of people. But there is one person in that passage that is singled out, and it says that he appeared to James. Can you imagine what that conversation was like? how he was able to convince, this is his brother, this is me. I am Jesus, but I am the Lord of all. And we know that it made such a real impact on the life of James that just three decades later, in AD 62, James was arrested as the leader of the church, and he was taken to the pinnacle of the temple. And they tried to get him to use his influence to renounce his faith But we are told from history that James looked out and called down and said, Why do you ask me about the Son of Man? He dwells in heaven at the right hand of the mighty power, and he will come in clouds of heaven. And in anger, they threw him off the pinnacle of the temple. And when he he fell to the ground, he wasn't dead. He was just beaten and broken. And he twisted to his knees and began to pray for the forgiveness of his enemies. This is the James that acknowledged that Jesus was Lord of all. And the reason I'm telling you this is this James not only came to live for Jesus, but to be willing to die for his faith. And he is the one who is telling us, consider it joy when you encounter different kinds of trials. Here's a man who is ready for trials. So what is James telling us right off the bat? First of all, we learn that trials are inevitable, right? He is writing to the 12 tribes that are scattered all over Mesopotamia and the Mediterranean. And these were Jewish believers who were undergoing the pressure and the persecution and the troubles um, of every kind. And he is writing to encourage them. And he says, consider it, my brothers, pure joy. If you face trials, oh no, he doesn't say that. Not if you face trials. He says, when you face trials. That means he is saying that trials are going to come into the life of every believer. And most of us are either right smack dab in the middle of a trial or heading out of a trial or we're heading into a trial. I'm sorry to say that. It isn't very exciting to hear this truth, but it is the truth. And we must not think as Christians that if we are believers that certain things couldn't possibly happen to us, that's just not the case. History tells us otherwise. The Bible tells you otherwise. Personal experience tells you otherwise. Trials are inevitable, and I will tell you otherwise. In the lives of those who are followers of Jesus, even devout followers of Jesus, things are going to happen. But this is hard. It is hard for us to process, isn't it? And it's not just because 
We misread Jesus' promises to always be with us, to protect us, to uh, make all things happen according to his will in our lives. But it's because we live in this particular moment in history. There has never been a place or time where people were more squeamish about suffering. In past centuries, people expected life to be unfair. They knew they were surrounded by death and suffering and trouble. They saw things. They saw life through the lens of the suffering all around them and their own suffering. They knew that life could be brutal and that life could be short. But today... <laughs> If things don't go well, we so easily fall apart, don't we? Or at least we try to blame someone or something else for our sufferings. Um, our first recourse is, we're going to fix this or we're going to sue somebody. This is not going to happen to me. But believers know that we live in a fallen world. And as the scriptures tell us, the rain will fall on the just and the unjust. Blessings come into the lives of believers and non-believers that are undeserved. And also trouble comes sometimes deserved, sometimes undeserved. So we don't want to be caught. I don't want you to be caught into wrongly thinking that we have to get all of our happiness here and now. And that if anything goes wrong with our health, if anything goes wrong with our children or our husband, if anything goes wrong with our love here, with our money here, we're devastated. I don't want you to be devastated, ladies. And even though we are Christians and we read God's word, we still swim in the influence and the waters of our culture. We are told to think that we deserve to be happy all the time. Anything can happen to anybody and anything can happen to you. First Peter 4.12 tells us, don't be surprised. Don't be astonished at the fiery trial that is coming to try you as if something strange were happening. Be prepared. It tells us in verse 1 of 1 Peter 4 that we are to arm ourselves, to prepare ourselves, and to be ready. So we want to have this balanced view, a balanced approach to trouble. And James tells us this is the same James who died for his faith who was prepared for the suffering that came his way, this is the same James who in advance of that incident in his life is telling us, consider it pure joy when you face trials. Look real carefully. He is not a masochist. He doesn't say, oh, enjoy your trials. He says, consider it pure joy. He doesn't just say, well, think happy, positive thoughts and peaceful thoughts. Let them just pass through your mind and roll with it. No, he tells us why we can consider it pure joy. And it is that very word, consider. It means you're supposed to look at your trials through a different lens. We are to look at what trials will produce, what trials and troubles can bring you. And he says, consider it joy because for this reason... There is a purpose and a reason that you might not see. You know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You have to realize, you have to consider, you have to meditate, you have to put this in your mind, ladies, that when trials come out of the blue and come into your life, consider and ask, what great thing is God going to do through this? Paul can say, I glory in my troubles and my tribulations because we know 
that it produces steadfastness and the ultimate end of steadfastness is a hope that is not going to be shaken. You and I have to get a bigger picture and I promise you, suffering has the potential to bring good things into your life if you see them in the right way. It's how we develop humility, freedom, compassion, and faith that cannot be shaken. And I will tell you, there have been some hard things in my life. When I was young, I suffered breakups, breakups with boyfriends, quarrels with my girlfriends. And if you're young, those are big troubles. Those are things that shake us, aren't they? Not to be invited to the party. But later on in life, I have suffered as well. Our ministry has been lied about. We have been accused of things that we're innocent of. We have been, and I will not use this word lightly, slandered. We have lost, quote unquote, friends that have walked out on us. I have lost a mother that I loved and a father that I loved. And in 2008, I will call it, borrowing a phrase from Queen Elizabeth, an annus horribilis, which meant a horrible year when we lost our son. I know you have had trouble in yours, and I cannot say to you exactly that I know what you are going through, but I can say that I know the one who knows, and I have come to see by experience, based on the truths of the Word of God, that it is through the deepest sufferings that God has taught me the deepest lessons. It is and has been the greatest catalyst for growth and change in my life. I know we don't like it, but if we will trust him, and we can trust God, if we can't trust God, we can't trust anyone, if you learn to trust him, you can come through this and learn compassion and wisdom and experience and lessons, and you get a grasp of God that you would have never known otherwise. In those darkest moments, I have seen God is good and God is there. And it isn't always easy, but you will come through with the unshakable assurance that he is in charge and that he has a loving purpose and he can do what he says he will do and transform something terrible into something wonderful. Suffering is never for nothing. And truthfully, I have not found intellectual satisfaction. (laughs) I am saying these words to you, but I cannot intellectually wrap my mind around it. Paul himself said, we are perplexed at times, but we're not in despair. And the reason we're not in despair is because we have peace in knowing that I can trust my Savior, the Lord Jesus, who is my God, who is in control. The answer is not an explanation for our sufferings that we're going through, but it is a person. Verse 5 tells us, ask for wisdom. Now, wisdom is not just, oh, we, we often quote this verse out of context, but James is specifically saying, ask for wisdom in your trials. It's not an isolated verse. Understand, if you don't know what to do in your trials, ask God to show you. And we are told, and this is a promise we can bank on, that when we ask God for wisdom and we really are seeking him, he gives us himself and his wisdom generously. Lean into that. Tell him you need his wisdom. Tell him he is your only hope. That is the way to enter into an unshakable reality to a deeper, settled, grounded faith. Stop for a minute and think about the last trial you went through. 
weren't you praying harder? Weren't you praying more desperately before the trouble came? Weren't you intently searching and reading your Bible more than when before the trouble came? Weren't you on your knees in prayer more? Now you are enduring. Now you are not retreating. You are praying. You are reading. You are asking. You are more sensitive to obey the commands of God. You're more intentional in your worship. Ladies, my friends, you are learning endurance in the midst of this. And it means at the end of it all, if you will let God and let patience have its perfect work, you will not be moved. You will stand strong. Verse 4 says, let steadfastness have its full effect. Right now, hold on. And eventually, we all will see the enormity of what Jesus is doing in these trials in our lives. If you are struggling with this idea, ask God to give you wisdom. And no doubt, he will give it to you. Don't doubt him. Don't think God isn't really real. This is out of his control. God's taken his hand, his eyes off of me. God doesn't love me. Don't doubt. That's what James is saying. Believe and you will find that stability. God uses these things in our lives to help believers mature in their faith. And in this next section that I want to talk about, James turns the discussion to the topic of temptation. Although trials are to be counted as a reason for joy, temptations are to be identified, recognized, resisted, and overcome. Interestingly, the Greek word is the same for trials and temptations. James uses it, he uses the same word, but in a different way. Only the context is revealing whether the word should refer to outward troubles or inward enticements, okay? Inward enticements is what we're talking about. This one word, which has two very different meanings. Let me explain it to you this way. Picture this in terms of trouble and temptations being like fire. Fire can be destructive. It can be devastating. It can be disastrous. But the controlled use of fire in the hands of a skillful chef, in the hands of a metal forger, in the hands of a jeweler can result in useful things, in beautiful things, and in valuable things. In each circumstance, the same element of fire is being used, but is being used by different forces and different people for different purposes. In the spiritual realm, Satan is the murderous tempter, and our Lord is the skilled craftsman. I love to think of it as God being the great alchemist. He is the one, if you know what an alchemist is, in the Middle Ages, there were those who thought they could take base metals, lead and iron, and turn them into gold. They never discovered that process. They tried to, but God is the great alchemist. He takes the base parts, the parts of our lives that are not very valuable, and he transforms them through his process of trials and tests. We can be made more beautiful. But on the other hand, Satan has an altogether different purpose. He tempts us to bring out the bad, see verses 13 through 19. And while God tests us to bring out the good in our lives and trials and temptations, they are very different from one another. They do have some things in common. We need to be prepared for both. God uses trials to perfect us. 
Satan wants to use temptations to destroy us. So without proper preparation in seeing and identifying what's going on, the believer can be defeated. In other words, if we go into trials with no knowledge of what is going on based on Scripture, we can be overcome and overwhelmed and discouraged by our trials to the point where we give up on God. Likewise, if we enter into life without preparation for temptations that we will face— we will quickly fall prey to the snares of sin. Nothing tests the integrity of our faith like the response that we have to temptation. Remember, James wrote this letter to believers who not only were facing persecution, but they were facing the enticements to sin as the nations around them would sin, to have their values. His message is for us to endure for Christ in all circumstances. So, the first principle, how do we face temptation? We take responsibility for temptation. James emphasizes that in verse 13. It is not God who tempts us, but it is our own sinful desires. Just look in the mirror and say, the responsibility is mine when I sin. The second thing we can learn from James is to anticipate the course and the process of temptation. James outlines in Scripture four steps for getting us to submit to God and resist temptation in verses 4 to 16. Satan will start with enticement. He encourages us to turn routine desires and make them runaway desires. He uses entrapment to exploit our weaknesses. He uses the right bait to catch us. And as Greg has often quoted, Martin Luther, we are told you cannot stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from building a nest in your hair. Satan starts with the enticement, but next he wants to entrap us. That's when we need to identify what is really happening before we get trapped. After we are trapped, he follows this with involvement, urging us to act on the temptation. And let me tell you, it's very hard to pull back once you're this deep. Very hard once you've been entrapped and you're engaging in thinking and acting and doing. Very hard to stop us from acting on the temptation. That's why we want to catch it and be prepared ahead of time. Identify what it is that is enticing us and stop at that point. Because if you go further and you involve yourself in acting on temptation and sinning against God and do this repeatedly, you will end up enslaved. That is the final phase of where Satan wants to take you. He wants to enslave you and make that sin a habit and turn that habit into a lifestyle. Once again, I'm quoting my wise husband, Greg, who's often explained the process of sin like this. So a thought, reap a habit. So a habit, reap a character. So a character, reap a destiny. We don't want Satan to take us down that road to determine our destiny and entrap us and cause us to become enslaved. We want to understand that strategic process and resist it. And the third principle that we need to learn is we need to activate the replacement for temptation. James reminds us in verse 17 that in contrast to the evil enticements that come within us, all good gifts are from God who is over us. The way to deal with temptation is to fill your mind with good things, enabling you to identify those bad things. And instead of focusing on, meditating on, and engaging in the thoughts of temptation, we focus on the one 
who promised to give us victory. He had not only promised us victory, he promised us the kingdom. What are you swapping out to replace for the enticements that are fleeting in this world compared to the kingdom and the joy and the glory that God has promised us if we follow him and and meditate on his goodness, revel on his mercy and grace, occupy every thought with his truth. Let us remember that final and fourth principle of how to resist temptation is accepting the reason. James reminds us, and I hope this is the final word of encouragement I'm going to leave you with, that if you're experiencing temptation, it is because who you are, who we are, are followers of Jesus Christ. If you're not following Christ, temptation doesn't even, it's not even on your radar. You just give in to it. You just follow the course and the, and the path of this world. But if you're struggling with temptation, be encouraged because you're being tempted only because the enemy is trying to keep you from being the kind of person and realize the image of Jesus that he is conforming us into. He wants us to be like himself, to be his image bearers. You don't have to be a victim. You can be a victor, not only in your trials by the way you look at them and how you deal with them with wisdom, but in your temptations and how you resist them. Focus on the fact that God has given us all things in Christ to richly enjoy. Don't settle for the cheap imitations that the enemy is trying to bring into your life. Illicit activities, people, places, thoughts. Don't settle for that. They're just garbage compared to the beauty and the glory and the lasting life and love that you will have ultimately as you follow Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would make it possible for us even now as we consider our hearts what your son did for us, that we might be able to stay and stand our ground and obey you in the midst of troubles and trials and temptations. Help us. Make us like Jesus. Make us like your son. That is what we want, and we pray it in his name. Amen.